Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome. This is another podcast in the Sex, Sexualities and Sex Work special series. I have with me today Maithili Srinivas, okay, who's going to talk to us about her book, Reproductive Politics and the Making of Modern India. Mithili, can you just tell us who you are, um, what your area of expertise is, please? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a professor of history and women's gender and sexuality studies at Ohio State, and I work uh, primarily on South Asia in terms of my geographic interests and my sort of thematic interests uh, started off earlier in my career with a focus on the history of the family and gender, um, primarily in South India. And I was really kind of interested in how things that we ordinarily think of as sort of static or unchanging. So like the family, for example, has this really rich and important history that connects up with a lot of other uh, with a lot of other historical changes, whether they're in the economy or in politics or political movements or social movements. And so that's where my work started and the current work that we're talking about today. um, This book kind of grew from that, uh, where I became interested in histories of reproduction, which again is another thing that feels like it's ahistorical, right? Of course, human beings have been reproducing for a really long time, um, but the ways in which reproduction is talked about and engaged with and sort of fits into broader histories, I think keeps changing over time. So that's the kind of question I'm interested in. Yeah, and I suppose the types of uh, reproductive histories around who reproduces really changes over time as well. So um, what prompted you to write this book? What, what was the kind of, you know, what was the, the, the immediate lead up to the book? Yeah, to be honest, I think it was, uh, it started off as a kind of population book, like a book about the history of uh, population as a discourse and a social anxiety. Um, Because when I was, for a long time, you know, India has been perceived as this sort of overpopulated place. Uh, And of course, when I was growing up in the, I grew up in the US, uh, but when I visited India as a kid in the 70s and 80s, Um, I would always just hear around me from my family and from others, you know, like, oh, the problems of India are are problems of population. And when I became uh, a historian, I started thinking about how this idea about population is really also always a question about reproduction, right? So the assumption that a place is overpopulated or claims about population are really linked to, well, you know, people are over reproducing, right? They're having too much sex, they're um, having too many children. And so they're having, you know, reproduction's out of control. So I started wondering about um, that kind of nexus. Like what if we were to write a history about um, the idea about Indian population if we paid attention to reproduction and reproductive sexualities? 
Um, so that was sort of like the core question that kind of got me going. And as I worked on the book, and I worked on it for a really long time, um, an embarrassingly long time, honestly, um, but I realized that the book was more and more about, it was about population, but it was also about this question about why does reproduction appear as a kind of social problem at specific historical moments? Like, what are the conjunctures where that occurs? Um, and whose reproduction, going back to what you were saying earlier, Rachel, like, whose reproduction becomes seen as problematic? Um, and why? And so that was kind of what got me started on the thing that became this book. And I, I first thought that this second, this is my second book project. And I thought it was really different than the first one about sort of family histories. And the more I worked on it, the more I realized that it was actually in a way part of the same project, um, that it's about kind of historicizing a set of ideas about the family and heterosexuality and reproductive sexuality and health um, in ways that I think are tremendously, for me felt tremendously important as a way to connect histories of sexuality to things that are often seen as distinct from or separate from sexuality. So sexuality in the economy, for instance, like a lot of the chapters are organized around sort of juxtapositions that I found kind of startling. You know, I sort of looked at the history of famine and I found that people were talking about marriage and sexuality as a famine response in some way. Um, I was interested in questions about national sovereignty and realized that a lot of those debates were also about fertility rates. And so I want to think about a history of sexuality that enables us to engage all of these questions, that understand sexuality as sort of integrally part and part of a whole range of historical changes. Yeah, I was I was really struck as I was reading the book because a lot of the things that, uh, you know, sort of that I was hearing in the book really resonated with the type of stuff that I'd heard said about the Irish, you know, and the the, the mm -hmm. kind of the relationship with the the, the British and the the um, Indian Indian sort of subcontinent and the Brit um, and the British and Ireland. There seemed to be real kind of similarities there around these discourses around um uh sort of colonialization and like this kind of uh stripping away of natural resources from both those areas but then the blame being placed on the uh sort of the colonized nation you know it's your fault you're poor because you've got no so 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 many children it's not the fact that we've been robbing you for 400 years it's made you poor it's <laughs> you it's you and your children so um your book opens with a description of the 1952 International Committee for Planned Parenthood. Can you tell us about this and um, why it was so important that you sort of like it was the introduction to your book, what, what, sort of what it meant for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, when you're writing, uh, doing writing of any kind, uh, but including a book, there's always a question about where do you start, right? because um, there's there's always way more to say than you possibly can. And I started with this uh, 1952 conference because I was struck in part by how such, so this was this conference, it took place in Bombay and it led to the founding of the International Planned Parenthood Federation. And it brought together uh, Margaret Sanger, the American birth control advocate, who was a really key figure um, in sort of the global history of contraception, 
with uh, uh, an organ, a brand new organization in India called the Family Planning Association of India um, that was run by Dhanvanti Ramarao, who was a, a longtime women's rights activist. And I was interested in how this really key moment in the global history of family planning and the global history of population control, right, the creation of the IPPF, the International Planned Parenthood Federation, how that, you know, that took place in Bombay, right? It took place in India. Uh, I didn't even know that uh, for a long time um, because we sort of assume that the sort of genesis of some of these major transnational organizations are in the West, right? Either in the US or, or in the UK or Western Europe. Um, but in fact, it was in India. And I was interested in what kind of conjunctions occurred that, that sort of made that happen in India. And in brief, you know, with that conference, um, the, the sort of ways that it came to be in India had a lot to do with Margaret Sanger um, because she was interested in sort of globalizing the movement for family planning or planned parenthood. And she was concerned that it was perceived as a sort of a Western movement um, and even as a kind of imperialist movement, right? Um, and so that, that was just really about the interests of the West and that was concerned only with people in the United States and Western Europe. And she really kind of launched this campaign to say, you know, we need to show the world that this is a global movement and what better way to do that than to have this conference in India. Mm. So she reaches out to Danvanti Ramarao, um, you know, a couple, just a year or so before the conference. And she's like, okay, um, I, I heard about your new organization, the Family Planning Association of India, and I heard that you've done a national conference. How about you do an international one? Um, and the FPAI and Danvanti Ramarao agreed. They were interested in doing this. Um, it gave them kind of international visibility that, that they were also seeking. And so it was sort of the interest of these two groups coming together. And um, you know, Sanger with the international, what was called the International Planned Parenthood Committee, sort of brought the conference uh, to India and folks in India were quite happy to have it. So I was interested in that kind of moment of intersection and what it reveals about how India is actually really central, I would argue, to the creation of global family planning as a set of ideas and a set of institutions. And I thought this conference was a good example to show how some of that actually happened. Yeah. Because I think I think two things struck me about that is one that this kind of like international global approach kind of almost distracts from sort of Sanger's like you know my understanding of Sanger is that the the birth in the, the um, family planning association in the U.S. was very racially kind of uh, stratified, you know. So and it's and so making it more international kind of distracts against that kind of control of poor reproduction, poor people's reproduction. But also what, what really attracted me to this book and why I really wanted to talk to you about it is because um, in my own research, when I've been researching around sex work, there's a really infamous act, the Contagious Diseases Act in the 1860s, actually originated in India. The, uh, the, the British colonists used them in India against Indian women. Yeah, not particularly successfully. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the sort of um, the, the communities tend to protect the women that these acts were used against, but then imported them to England. And, that, and I saw a replication 
in this debate around in you know around sort of family planning and actually you know the role that India plays in this kind of the being the sort of um, the birthplace of some of these 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 discussions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point because what um, we sort of often assume in a in sort of histories of colonialism that it's the sort of metropole, right, that sort of comes over to the colony and sort of imposes its values on it in some way. And I think that's true, but it's always, it occurs sort of in kind of um, in relationship with what's going on in the colony. And I think in the in the case of sort of reproductive politics, I think a lot of um, the very notion about how to regulate reproductive sexuality comes out of these colonial encounters or these colonial intersections. So I think the CD acts, the contagious diseases acts are a good example of that. I think um, another example that I was really interested in in the book uh, has to do with uh, sort of birth control in the late 19th century where Annie Besant, who's a British-Irish activist, as you know, uh, sort of looks to India in order to make a case for birth control in England and globally. Um, and she sort of starts off with, you know, she's Annie Besant, I'm sort of endlessly fascinated by Annie Besant because she has sort of all these layers and levels to her life. You know, she eventually winds up in India as an Indian nationalist and heads the Indian National Congress. But well before that, um, in the 1870s, she um, is interested in birth control, but specifically in the English context. And she starts this campaign, she publishes this book, um, and she courts arrest for publicizing contraception. And she's famously put on trial with her associate Charles Bradlaugh um, for spreading obscenity by publishing this book about methods of birth control, which is a reprint actually of an American physician, Charles Knowles's book. And through the course of the trial, she defends herself using a lot of Malthusian reasoning, you know, that the poor people need birth control because they're reproducing too much. And so we need to curtail their reproduction or enable them to control their reproduction um, and sort of ameliorate their poverty. The Irish thing that you were talking about comes in there too, right? She talks a lot about like, um, you know, conditions in Ireland and conditions among the poor in England um, as reasons why we need birth control. But what I was really interested in is, so she has this acquittal. I mean, she has this trial. She's eventually acquitted on a technicality. And then she starts reading about famine in India that was going on at the same time from 1876 to 1878. And she very quickly, Bassant very quickly kind of pivots her rationale for birth control to say, it's not just poverty in England. We need to be paying attention to poverty in the British empire and specifically in India. Look at how many people are dying of famine in India isn't this a good reason why we need to be spreading birth control in order to con- to reduce and control the population in the colonies? Um, and so India becomes, I would argue, sort of really pivotal and important in Besant's case for birth control um, in England in the 1870s and 1880s. And she founds this thing called the Malthusian League, which is all about spreading these ideas, sort of Malthusian rationale for birth control as a kind of a poverty 
alleviating device. Um, and all of that sort of comes, you know, through her engagement with India. And then interestingly, there's a Malthusian league that's founded in India, um, in the city of Madras to kind of correspond with Basant and sort of talk about how to bring Malthusian ideas to India. So there's a real kind of circulation here um, that, that you can't tell this history just from the perspective of, of sort of one national space, um, but it's very much sort of reproduction like I started this book with this question, like why does reproduction emerge as a social problem at certain moments? And you can't tell that history, I think, without paying attention to those transnational circulations. Um, that's why reproduction is called into question. Mm. I would, And you know what, it's really funny because as you're mentioning this, as you're talking about it, again, I get this impression, like, you know, obviously anyone who listens to it knows my area of like expertise is sex work. But I get the same impression with Bisan as I got with Judith Butler that she, they they kind of get to the edge of what you know they get to the the sort of like the front of what the problem is and it's invariably industrialization, capitalism, you know, colonization, which is really the root causes of the poverty. Yeah, mm -hmm. because you've interrupted that kind of natural flow. I mean, you know, if you've got poor women working in factories, you've not got breastfeeding. You know, and I know breastfeeding is not a brilliant way a form of contraceptive, but it does slow down the birth rate some, somewhat. So capitalism, capitalism has come in the way of a not brilliant system, but a system that allowed itself to control itself to an extent. And they, they constantly don't engage with that argument about the damage that's being done by industrialization and capitalism and it's the same with butler Butler sort of gets these uh contagious diseases acts overturned but then rather than sort of addressing the social issues that makes sort of prostitution an option she kind of turns on prostitution and it's the it's mm -hmm. almost the same here with percent isn't it it's almost like you know blaming the poor for their own poverty mm -hmm. rather than looking at the bigger issues mm -hmm. and, you know as a you know as a as a feminist myself i i always feel slightly disappointed that they weren't sort of you know, more, you know, they just worked out with the sisters more, you know. <laughs> it's yeah, that, yeah. Mean, it's, it's an ongoing theme, like even nowadays with serial feminism, you know, there's this, tendin this tendency to side, you know, to appear to be on the, the side of the poor and the sort of marginalised, but actually your tendency is towards the sort of elitism, you know. So, so the book um, covers a period between the 1870s and the 1970s. So can you tell us what was going on in terms of turn my page, reproduction reforms in India at that time? Yeah, so, well, that's a huge question. Um, and I guess I, if you don't mind, I just wanted to go back. For, I'm gonna, I'm gonna address your, your yeah, question. Please. But I wanted to go back just a little bit to the, to the elitism question and sort of what are the real, um, what are the real issues that folks are turning away from? Because I think that's something that I thought a lot about um, when I was writing this book and was thinking about why that was the case. And I think sort of even going back to the question of famine um, <clears throat> in the 19th century, you know, India had a lot of major famines in this period. And the, the one that I focus on in the first chapter in the 1870s was uh, one that a lot of historians like Mike Davis writes about as sort of this massive worldwide, uh, had sort of worldwide implications um, related to sort of climate factors around El Nino. And um, what I was interested in was sort of precisely what you're raising, which is that, um, you know, famine in India in the 1870s 
was was not caused by over reproduction or population growth, because of course, population, so far as we know, was not growing at that time in any case. Um, and so that that sort of the kind of question that you're asking is like, why do people keep turning towards reproduction and sort of blaming pe poor people for their own poverty it was sort of one of the driving questions here. Um, and I don't know if I have an answer to that, but I was interested in how um, through this whole period, the question of reproductive sexuality becomes the means through which to say uh, the colonized population is you know, there's, there's, a lar there's a large discourse about native sexualities already, right? That native sexualities are like perverse or degenerate, right? There's a racialization of sexuality to suggest that colonized folks are kind of other um, because of their differing sexual practices. What's interesting here to sort of make that connection with something like famine suggests to me that it's also a way to blame colonized populations for their own poverty. Um, you know, that the sexuality is supposedly within colonial discourse is not just about perversity or degeneracy, but is also to blame for the sort of the, the poverty that we know sort of ensues from colonial rule itself. Um, and so I'm interested in one of the things I mentioned in the book is kind of like tracking through how does that play out, not just in a colonial context, but in a post-colonial one as well. And I can talk about that when we talk about later chapters. Um, but it's really kind of a foundational idea that I trace through the book. Um, but to answer, to go back to your other question um, about the 1870s to the 1970s, uh, kind of briefly, I guess I'll say, you know, the book sort of starts off with this question about famine that we've been talking about. And then I move on to the 1920s and 30s and talk about how reproduction gets caught up with various ideas about the Indian nation and uh, Indian nationalism. And so this is a period when eugenics is a dominant scientific and political idea. And India and Indians are very much part of this eugenic discourse to kind of make a case around, um, you know, sort of improving in quotes, reproduction, so that Indians are more fit for sovereign rule, right? So this is how eugenics gets really caught up with Indian nationalism. And there's been a number of historians, probably most importantly, Sarah Hodges, who's written about this as well. Um, so the so the second, the middle part of the book looks at that. And then the last part of the book, looks at post-colonial India and specifically how some of these ideas that I've been trying to trace through the colonial period um, play out in a post-colonial context where the Indian government, again in 1952, becomes the first one in the world to institute a program of um, population control. And so I'm really interested in how that comes about um, what are sort of the ideas and logics behind this move towards population control and what are some of its effects or, or implications? And so the book sort of starts in the 1870s because I see that as a moment when certain ideas about population and reproduction get consolidated in the context of um, imperial India. And the 1970s, because that's a moment when uh, the period of the emergency in India, which is this a couple of years when Indira Gandhi suspended sort of parliamentary democracy and instituted among other things, a really draconian population control system. So the book kind of spans the period, that sort of century between those two moments. Yeah, it's quite, 
It's quite interesting because the more that I, the, the more that we're talking, I keep getting these like, you know, there's there's something really genocidal about this, isn't there? There's, it's almost like, you know what, we're going to put this to, we're going to almost like create this um, potential for for sort of extreme birth control if we need it. You know, it's like, you know, and you you hear those re- that rhetoric around um, sort of uh, sort of being overrun in terms of, of genocide. And I'm thinking about the Rwandan genocide when, the, you know, sort of the the uh, the the one of the, you know, the the um, I can't remember the, the, the I think we're, we're being referred to as uh, as. Um, Oh, not mosquitoes, but they were they were they were being re- referred to as like cockroaches. And in terms of like the genocide, you know, the the genocide of the Jews in in Europe in the 1930s, there were always these images around rats and reproduction, and you know, so it's kind of almost like this kind of like little sort of potential genocide sort of generating in the background. This is over, you know, overrun. But what really struck me about it as well, again, like this this parallel between India and and Ireland. It's almost like a parting shot, you know. It's a it's a parting shot, like you know. Well, you know, you're responsible for this. It wasn't, you know, you're responsible for the the, the state of your country because of this this you know this irresponsibility, you know, this irresponsibility, you know, because there's a tendency to think about lack of birth control around a lack of responsibility, and mm-hmm. yeah, the, like the parallels are really striking. You know, they all seem to sort of be bubbling up around the sort of same sorts of times in different spaces around the globe. And I just think you, your book really provokes that thought. I, that's why I really enjoyed it. I was really like sort of, you know, connecting the dots in a way that I'd not seen before. I'd really mm-hmm. not seen before. You sort of like introduced a whole new narrative to me that I was not aware of. And I was really grateful to that. I really enjoyed the book. Um so back to back to the book. So you discuss a flawed narrative about population and economy being used to justify interventions into people's lives. Can you explore this for us? How does the, the book discuss this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think that the core, sort of core idea that I argue begins in the 1870s and continues forward that I'm trying to trace is this notion that that we've been talking about, which is that poverty um, is a function of population and that population growth is a function of unrestrained reproductive sexuality. So there's sort of two moves there, right? And so what I'm interested in is sort of tracking that narrative as it repeats in a variety of different historical moments. And then on the one hand, and I'm also interested in how this is a really, um, it's a flawed logic for a couple of reasons that I'll talk about, Um, but it's also a really devastating, uh, it has really devastating implications for the lives of ordinary people, um, especially for the lives of of women. Um, So the reason it's flawed, and and this is not something that uh, I'm bringing that's new to the table, a lot of scholars have talked about this, Um, but I think the the notion, I mean, this is at base a kind of a Malthusian logic, right? That that we live in a world with a kind of a zero, it's a sort of a zero sum game where there's a finite amount of resources, Malthus argued, and that if 
uh, population increased, then people would have fewer resources, right? This is like an idea that's been debunked a lot by feminists and by a lot of other scholars, but it has this like tremendously long life. Um, and I think, uh, but you know, if I'm gonna sort of rehash a little bit of that debunking, you know, I think one, one reason that, that uh, scholars have been critical of this is that of course resources are not a zero sum game, um, is that, uh, Malthus couldn't have imagined the world, of course, that we live in, um, perhaps through no fault of his own. But um, in fact, you know, our capacity to increase our resources has really increased alongside our population. So there are limitations to resources, but it's not quite the zero sum game that Malthus was talking about. Um, so that's sort of one critique that people have raised. Another critique that people have um, have, have put forward is that, of course, populations or people don't endlessly reproduce. Um, people recognize there's good reason for people to have large families um, that has to do with their own economic and social situations that often large families are a social support for families that don't have other means of support or are not provided um, with other social services. And so people have children, especially within agrarian societies, might have many children if they're, if they're concerned that their children won't survive um, or if they actually need their children for the work that their families are doing. So there's many reasons people have children. They don't have them indefinitely. People have their own logics and rationales and, and can regulate their own reproduction, right, without necessarily a top-down heavy-handed intervention from the state. And yet, sort of these, this sort of Malthusian logic becomes the basis for which um, first in 19th century India, there's a, you know, there's a, a a critique of Indians for over-reproducing, especially of poor Indians for over-reproducing. Um, and this logic kind of changes into the course of the 20th century. Um, uh, it's not just sort of Malthus endlessly repeated, but the core Malthusian idea is that over-reproduction is responsible for poverty kind of endures. So that um, when you get a state like a national state, the colonial state was always sort of hesitant to intervene too directly in reproduction, um, was concerned about the political implications of doing so. But after 1947, when you have the, the nation state, um, actually it, it opens up the space for state power to make an intervention, right? To actually take this idea um, that reproduction is a cause of poverty and sort of do something about it. In other words, put into place all of these policies that are designed to discourage people from having um, more than, eventually more than having two children. Um, and so the, the, the part about the sort of the implications of this logic um, of course, is that certain women's reproduction gets demonized um, as the sort of cause of national poverty or the failures, um, or gets blamed for the failures of post-colonial development. Um, because it's very rarely, of course, the people who are sort of talking openly about uh, problems of reproduction, they're usually not talking about their own reproduction. Um, they're not talking about the size of their own families, right? They're always talking about the reproduction of others. So in the colonial case, it's like British imperial administrators who were talking about the problems of Indian reproduction. Um, but as we move into the 20th century, it's increasingly Indian upper caste elites who are talking about the reproduction of poor and lower caste um, populations. And so there too, it's always sort of of like this othering process that's going on that instead of looking to 
um, or as a shield against looking to other problems or failures of development, reproduction becomes sort of like an easy scapegoat, um, an easy claim to say, and a supposedly easy point of intervention, although it's never easy, um, as a way to say, if we could just curtail you know, childbirth, uh, then, then we would have the kind of economic development that we're looking for. And this comes, again, going back to the transnational stuff we were talking about, this doesn't just come from Indians independently, it comes from a global network that includes organizations like the International Planned Parenthood Federation that are similarly making this case, you know, that that the world is suffering from, they claim, a global population explosion, um, and we need to sort of control that in places like India. So I'll just throw out there one of the uh, funniest slash saddest uh, examples of this that I saw when I was sort of digging through uh, some of the archives of the Ford Foundation, which was a major funder of um, Indian population control efforts, was the scheme that uh, I share with my students always, just to give them a sense of, of how people were thinking back then. Um, in the 1960s, there was a scheme to say, could we have some kind of contraceptive that you could spray from planes um, that would uh, temporarily kind of sterilize people um, and then they would need something to counteract that. Now, this was never, so far as I could tell, a serious scientific enterprise. I don't think people ever put money behind it. I don't think it was considered a viable thing. Um, but the very notion that people were dreaming about a contraceptive that could be that effective um, and that could be applied universally gives you a sense of the power of this logic, right? Of, of suggesting that reproduction is sort of at the core of um, colonial and then later third world poverty. Yeah, as well. So, it, I mean, did are we uh, at the other end of the life scale are there discussions around pensions? Because presumably, in sort of agrarian uh, sort of societies, one of the functions of children is to look after you as you get old. Now, if if you're if you're sort of curtailing the amount of children that you're you're encouraging people to have. Presumably, this only works if you've got some sort of welfare system at the other end of life. Is there discussions in India at the same time about sort of pensions for for the for the more aged of the population? Um, not that I found, although uh, I certainly know that there were eventually sort of pensions put into place in the public sector. Um, but I think what one reason why this perhaps wasn't the case was because so much of the Indian economy was and is continues to be um, dominated by a so-called informal sector. So the state, so the government was really involved in economic planning and, and sort of national economic planning, but all of that was sort of like either state run or large businesses. Whereas most economic activity occurred at the level of sort of small business folks and informal networks. Hmm. Um, that that was actually economists estimate to have been the vast majority of economic activity through this period. And so that sector remained kind of outside of these promises of like state support for social services um, and things like that. That's cynical. So can you tell, so obviously it's really hard to have a discussion about sort of uh, reproductive rights without having a discussion around feminism. So can you tell me how the feminist movement in India contributed to these debates and the and how those feminist um, contributions in India varied to feminist contributions around contraception outside of India? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, and it was the question of feminism is like really uh, sort of was at the front of my mind when I was writing a lot of this book, because what I was interested in was on the one hand, just to think a little bit about the history, on the one hand, Indian feminists were at the forefront of making a claim for birth control um, in India beginning in the 1920s. And uh, part of the book kind of traces that history. And there's been some other really excellent and important writing um, that looks at the history of Indian feminism and birth control. So Sanja Maliwalia's book, Reproductive Restraints, sort of tells the story in a lot of detail um, that, uh, that Indian feminists were actually really active in calling for modes of contraception um, and for advocating for contraceptive access for women, um, as I said, beginning in the 1920s. But I was also interested in how um, feminist arguments became used for um, and perhaps co-opted into claims around population control from the 1940s, 50s, um, and onwards. And there, I'm interested in, you know, population control, like we've been talking about in the Indian case and, and all around the world, really, right, has not necessarily centered women's autonomy or women's autonomous control over their bodies. Um, sometimes, as in the Indian case, it's been um, semi-coercive and sometimes outright coercive. So it's not in that sense, population control is not feminist. And in fact, um, many uh, Indian feminists today have you know, been among the most important critics uh, of population control policies. So what I was interested in was a kind of paradox that I was trying to figure out about the 1940s and 1950s where I saw a lot of Indian uh, women who were involved in the Indian feminist movement or the Indian women's movement were really pushing for forms of family planning um, policies that would eventually become tied into population control. So I saw this kind of contradiction that was emerging because population control is not necessarily feminist. And yet you see all these sort of women's movement activists sort of really pushing for um, for this model. And so I, I was, I really, I spent a lot of time actually wondering why this was the case um, and trying to sort of figure out two things. One is, you know, in the 1940s, I would argue, and 50s, the Indian women's movement played a leading role in getting the Indian government to commit to a family planning program at the state level and to commit to funding that program and to making those services available. Um, and they did so, I think, in ways that people have often sort of ignored their role in that history, because the history of post-colonial development has often been told as a kind of a masculinist enterprise, which it was in many cases. Um, but I think there were these really powerful women like Danvanti Ramarao in the Family Planning Association of India, her associate Avabai Vardia, um, but then a number of other women as well, including even folks like Kamala Devi Chattopadhyaya, who's this really important birth control activist in the 30s and kind of endorses 
birth control and speaks at the conference in Bombay in 1952. There are all these folks who are sort of really at the forefront of sort of pushing the Indian government to provide birth control services for the population. Um, but at the same time, this gets sort of folded into this arguably kind of anti-feminist push for population control. Um, some, when I was writing this, you know, when I was showing it uh, sort of earlier drafts, I had scholars say to me, well, were Indian feminists sort of using this in an instrumentalist way? You know, like, did they see that by linking to development and linking um, to national planning, it was a way to advance their own interest in getting birth control to the masses, right? To increasing accessibility. And maybe that was true. You know, I think it's, it's always really hard to read historical intention from the archival sources that we have. So I'm sure that there were some women who sort of saw national development as a way to get their story out and to get their campaign out. But the implications of what they did um, sort of helped to make birth control and population control a kind of uh, a model of women's development or development for women in some really problematic ways. And in that history, to sort of go back to, to, to your question, I'm actually, I actually think that Indian feminists had a lot in common with other birth control activists. You know, I think there was a good reason why Margaret Sanger was such a close ally of Danvanti Ramarao, um, is that in this, there is a strand of feminist support for birth control <clears throat> that hasn't, um, that hasn't sort of stood with the sisters to sort of go back to your, to your point that has sort of instead, rather than focusing on reproductive autonomy um, for all women, has sort of centered instead a kind of a top-down model of reproductive control and regulation. Yeah, there's a definitely a hint of the sort of punitive arm of feminism around this. Mm -hmm. It became quite aware there's a sort of real dynamics around class you know so mm -hmm. in the book I, and i like this you you discuss indians negotiating their, their present and imagine their futures through debates about reproductive norms and practices um how does the book explore this can you sort of like for the for the listeners tell how this book mm -hmm. yeah sure i think um I'm trying to think of a of a good example um so one of the one of the examples that I uh, use in the book has to do with uh, baby weeks in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and I thought that was a really good sort of entry point into thinking about how uh, reproduction sort of reproductive politics becomes a way around, um, positing or envisioning a, a future for yourself, for your family, and for, for the nation state. Um, so these baby weeks, these occurred in India, but also in many parts of the world at this time. Um, and they were sometimes linked to eugenic movements as well. So the baby week that I start with um, was in Madras in the 1930s, uh, the city of Madras, now Chennai, uh, in the 1930s. And these baby weeks were like opportunities to, they were like public health initiatives, you know? So you could, you would have they, the city held this exhibition where people could come and visit and learn about like good child rearing techniques and find out about healthy food for babies. Um, 
and at the end there were sort of larger public health um, sort of exhibitions there. And at the same time, they would go hand in hand with these contests uh, around like the best babies. Uh, and I learned about some of this through uh, the historian Barbara Ramusak, who writes about baby weeks as well. And um, so they would sort of exhibit the, they would exhibit their babies in these competitions for like, who's the best baby? And they would divide up in the, in the Indian case, they divided up the babies according to caste and class and religious background. Um, and so the baby week, I, I pulled this sort of one, you know, and then there would be the best baby in the whole city or whatever. Um, and I was interested in the baby weeks as this moment where um, it sort of shows the argument that, in fact, that improving Indian modes of reproduction is supposed to kind of create or enable the population to exercise its own sovereignty. So if you think about this in the period of the 1920s, when um, Indian sexuality was constantly being attacked in kind of a colonialist and imperialist framework. So in, uh, in the 1920s, uh, Catherine Mayo's book, Mother India came out. Um, Mayo was an American journalist who uh, traveled to India and basically made the case in a very famous book in Mother India that Indian sexual and reproductive practices rendered Indians unfit for self-governance. And um, Rinalini Sinha writes about this in her book, Spectres of Mother India, um, that, that Sinha, I mean, that uh, Mayo was really part of this kind of like global discourse around Indian sovereignty and fertility that sort of made the case that um, Indian practices of child marriage, practices around childbirth, she sort of does this kind of expose. She's a journalist and she goes around, she does this expose and she says, you look at these practices and you can understand why there is a continuing need for British imperial control over India. So this book like makes a huge splash. It's like a major bestseller in the UK, in the US and in India. Gandhi um, famously recalls Mayo's book, The Drain Inspector's Report. Um, he sends Sarojini Naidu, the Indian feminist, to the United States to kind of counteract the negative impact that Mother India um, might have had on an American audience. Many, many Indians organize against the book. Many Indians write um, sort of rebuttals to the book. And so Mother India becomes this kind of flashpoint where the, the straight up argument that Mayo is making, which is that Indian childbirth and, and reproduction render Indians unfit for sovereignty, becomes this moment around which many Indians organize to say, actually, one, you know, we disagree with that, um, that Indians are perfectly fit for sovereignty, but that secondly, it becomes a moment that sparks a lot of discussion about Indian childbirth and reproductive practices. It leads to, or is part of leading to why um, there's a new law about child marriage in 1929. It also helps to spark some of the initial campaigns around birth control that take place in the 1930s that the book looks at. Um, so what I'm interested in is in how those debates around reproduction and childbirth are really about kind of imagining Indian, uh, how Indians imagine their future, right? Um, about uh, reforming practices of birth and reproduction is also a means within this eugenic logic too of sort of strengthening national sovereignty and imagining a future India um, that is independent from British rule.
so can you give us an idea of what the sort of like what types of um sort of contraception that were being promoted in this era were and I mean what was being used before that I mean you know India would have had this sort of contraception before that I like the I like the idea that that England and America thinks it's arrived at a place where no one's been stopping babies for a long time so what so what was the sort of like Indian way of uh, sort of like you know forms of contraception and the ones that were then being asserted on the Indian population afterwards yeah that's a it's a good question I don't have um you know, I think earlier on, prior to the advent of modern forms of contraception, you know, I think there were there were probably sort of various practices around um, uh, sort of norms that have to do with um, regulating sexual intimacy within marriage um, that have to do around, you know, with menstruation, um, with uh, uh, with breastfeeding and lactation, with norms around um, when uh, women, uh, young mothers would be spending time away from their husbands uh, with their natal families at the round of childbirth. I think there are sort of many, um, sort of many modes of regulating reproduction. Um, in terms of sort of more modern forms of contraception, so in the 1920s, when Indian campaigns for contraception were kind of getting off the ground, um, I think probably the primary methods um, that that uh, folks were using were so-called like a pessary, which is like a precursor of a, of a diaphragm. So basically, um, or other kind of barrier methods. Um, and then the book sort of looks at the sort of explosion of new contraceptive technologies in the 1960s, really. You know, so I spent a lot of time talking about IUDs, intrauterine um, devices or intrauterine contraceptive devices, um, which was uh, which played a huge role in Indian population um, control programs in the 1960s, alongside kind of other um, hormonal methods. So there's a huge shift, right, um, between this sort of earlier period of barrier methods that weren't very much medically controlled. Um, towards much more um, uh, forms of contraception that were much more under medical regulation and control or that could be controlled that way. And I would argue as well, and sort of historians of science and technology have made a similar um, claim, you know, so like Chicago Takeshita has a book about the global biopolitics of the IUD that talks about this is that the the design of some of these modern contraceptives is very much connected to uh, a drive for top-down, or they can be used um, as a form of top-down control. So an IUD, for example, is not entirely in, under the control of the people who use them, right? The person who uses it makes a decision at the outset about using an IUD, but needs a doctor's intervention to get one and to have it removed. Um, and so that the drive for population control actually helped to shape um, what kind of new contraceptive technologies were created, um, ones that would enable this kind of top-down regulation as opposed to um, sort of more individual choice in the matter. Very aggressive, isn't it? It's like, you know, this, mm -hmm. this, this idea of inserting something into a woman's body to, to stop any sort of like contraception, to, to stop any fertilization. It, it doesn't allow for for the to accommodate changes in circumstances or changes of mind, does it? It's, you know, you've got this, and you know, it's so intrusive. It's so intrusive. But I was also as well. I was wondering, like, so 
are there what are the discussions around breastfeeding at this time so you know uh it seems to be like the logical thing that if you're going to be talking about contraception you should be talking about breastfeeding but I'm aware from from sort of like studies that I've read around breastfeeding in this country that 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 in 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 the UK that the sort of breastfeeding was already falling out of fashion by the beginning of the 19th uh, 20th century and I wondered what was happening in the Indian context yeah, I don't actually, to be honest, I don't know a lot about that. I know I didn't really come across in the archives um, a lot of discussion about um, breastfeeding, really. Um, I know kind of from other historical work uh, that, you know, form like sort of infant formula was like really pushed um, at certain time periods with really mixed results or sometimes negative results. Um, but it wasn't. I mean, it's curious. I mean, it just wasn't something that came up really a lot. I guess one one thing is that if we think about these sort of top-down models of reproductive regulation, certainly um, breastfeeding would not fall into that uh, category, right? Because it's very much under the control of the person who's breastfeeding themselves. And the search here um, in the 1960s and this drive for more effective forms of contraception was very much around uh, forms of contraception that wouldn't require daily individual choice on the, on the part of the contraceptor. It was really a drive for um, something, a mass method. People talk about it as a, a, a mass method that could be used for millions of people um, without a lot of daily negotiation or intervention, um, which was one reason actually people were kind of uh, cautious about the, the birth control pill. Um, and one reason that the Indian government favored the IUD over the birth control pill. One reason was because the pill was more expensive, um, but the other, the other reason was the sense that it would require too much daily decision-making and they were looking for a, a model that, that wouldn't require that. So um, I would suspect that's probably why there wasn't a lot of discussion of breastfeeding in the archives, because it wasn't really seen as relevant um, on the part of population controllers to the kind of campaign they were trying to pursue. It's funny because all the time you're talking about this, this phrase keeps going through my head, this masculinist state intervention. And this, this masculinist state intervention doesn't necessarily seem to be coming entirely from men either, does it? It's almost like, you know, let's stop these poor women reproducing. Let's not use, let's not allow them to have control over their bodies or to use the methods they've been using for a long time. So you discuss um, the discourses around the idea of the small family. It was more than just a call for reproductive regulation. How's this explored in the book? What do, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I kept coming across uh, these images of the small family, um, which was defined as, eventually was defined as sort of a, a, a heterosexual couple, and typically there are two children, one's a boy, one's a girl. Um, and this image of the small family kind of really proliferated throughout, beginning in the 1920s, really proliferated across public space as a kind of ideal family. And when I was doing my research, I wasn't quite sure what to do with that image or how it was relevant to, to what I was 
trying to research, but I kept collecting these images. So I was really interested. Like I felt like there was something there, you know, and it finally wound up in, in the last chapter of the book, uh, which I call heterosexuality and the happy family. Um, because I was interested in how this, um, this family vision gets put forward first by early birth control manuals that sort of talk about this model as the ideal family. And then eventually this image gets taken up by state discourses of population control who sort of argue that the ideal Indian family poised for development is this small family. And I was interested in how this vision of the family, right, is, is putting forward a set of ideals that are so ubiquitous even in our own time that we might not even see them as interventions or ideals. But like, how is this norm constructed, right? First, this norm that the family is this kind of nuclear conjugal family that only in includes these members. Um, secondly, that this kind of family is um, uh, ideal because they've sort of properly planned their sexuality, that they're economically and consumer oriented, and that they're future oriented. And so I was interested in how all of those ideas get sort of tied into what I'm seeing as the intersection of the histories of heterosexuality with histories of development, um, and also with histories of affect and emotion, because the small family is supposed to be the happy family. Um, so the, the um, image that I took uh, that's used on the cover of the book, and I realize it's a podcast, so no one's going to see that, but uh, it's this image of the happy family. But the text that goes with it is, you know, remember, a small family is a happy family. And so I was interested in how the small family is supposed to be seen as future-oriented and happy as a basis, I mean, because of its appropriate attitude towards reproductive sexuality um, and its heteronormativity. Um, and so that's sort of where I got started and trying to pull together. So the, the last chapter of the book sort of tries to pull together that image and kind of deconstruct it and see what goes into sort of creating that particular kind of vision of the family and how it gets tied up with certain um, sort of heteronormative ideals. I was I was quite struck by that as well because I really picked up because obviously as you can understand, as you can hear I come from an Irish family uh, an Irish background yeah and what I got when when I read about the small family being a happy family I'm like who exactly is it a happy family for because actually what mm -hmm. I is a small family is less of a resistant family because there's a systematic attack here, isn't there? There's a systematic attack against women. Um, there's a systematic attack against the poor. There's a systematic attack against the family. You know, a small family is a lot less like social resistance to larger sort of like political pressure than a larger one has, has far less, um, you know, opportunity to protect itself from the vagaries of the, of the, um, the broader society, especially when the society that you're living in is hostile towards you because of your mm -hmm. poverty or your caste or whatever. And I was like, okay, this is what I've seen this before. Mm -hmm. It's happened before, you know, that mm -hmm. I just keep hearing the same narratives used against Asian, Asian family, you know, Indian families in this context is I hear against Irish Catholic mm -hmm. families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison, you know, and I think um, there's a lot, I mean, there's a, there's a lot contained there. I'm not going to try to address all of it, but I think um, one 
interesting sort of thing that came out was that they, uh, a lot of the population controllers sort of kept worrying that they would put out these images of small families, but that people wouldn't be convinced by them, sort of going back to the resistance that you're talking about, right? That people wouldn't actually be um, one to this idea that a small family is a happy family. So there's a there's a kind of interesting debate among the sort of um, the folks who are in charge of developing some of this imagery for the Indian state for like state run population control programs. And the debate is basically between folks who are saying, well, we need to sort of convince people that this is a good idea by showing how small families are happy. And the other side of that debate of folks who are saying, well, actually, you know, that's not going to work. What we need to do is just straight up tell folks what we want them to do, which is have one or two children. So should the, so should the slogan be a small family is a happy family, or should it be have one or two children, that's enough. And eventually this, the state slogan becomes have one or two children, that's enough. Um, on this notion that people are not going to be sort of convinced that they're going to resist um, this idea. And so they go for this ever more kind of like harsh or blunt kind of rhetoric as time goes on. How successful was this campaign? Um, not very successful overall, if you go by uh, birth rates. So there's not a lot of evidence either in India or globally that um, top-down population control campaigns work, in quotes, in the sense of actually convincing people to um, reduce their numbers of children. So I think where they can be effective um, or have the potential to be effective is if they actually um, make a wide variety of contraceptive options available to folks if they want them. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a point of effectiveness potentially. Um, but otherwise, in terms of actually um, convincing people to make particular decisions, there's a lot, a lot of evidence that suggests that it's not at all effective, that people are not going to be convinced by these campaigns and that they're convinced by other aspects of their lives. Um, so that when circumstances in people's lives change and there's a, a desire or a need to have fewer children than, than people will. Um, but otherwise, yeah, no, these campaigns were not particularly effective. Um, at all. Although I will say that the that the birth rate in India sort of at the macro level has really reduced. But again, um, I don't think it has much to do with these campaigns. It has to do with changes that have been going on in the country itself. Um, and as well as globally, right? Global fertility rates have fallen. And similarly, I don't think we can look to any sort of campaigning in this regard. I think we can look to accessibility and availability of contraception. Um, but also to people's own decision-making about what their needs are. Yeah, I mean, as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking hegemony doesn't work in this case. Hegemony, that kind of like, that sort of like cultural influence doesn't work. It has to be a bit more brutal than that really, doesn't it, to assert that agenda. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking, well, yeah, like it's quite an interesting comparison between the Indian comparison and the Chinese comparison. Mm -hmm. well, this did work, but it actually came... <laughs> was put, pushed through with a lot more for like a lot more of a punitive agenda, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of finding. So yeah. um, we're almost finished. So who did you intend this book for? What was your target audience? Because I had a lot of target audiences. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, um, you know, I, I mean, I certainly wrote it for, I guess, sort of two broad audiences. One, um, are historians of, of 
South Asia um, as a kind of, as a way to think about, as I was saying before, like how is the history of sexuality and reproductive sexuality relevant to how we understand core questions in South Asian history? And these are questions around poverty, around development, around colonialism uh, and nationalism um, in broad terms, right? So how is the history of sexuality and reproductive sexuality relevant to understanding all of that? Um, I guess a second audience, and, and they're not secondary at all, they're an equally primary audience for me, um, is uh, sort of feminist scholars around gender and sexuality, um, and specifically, of course, folks who work, work on um, reproduction. And I would like, it's, it's always ambitious for a, a scholarly book, but I would like it to uh, speak to questions around reproductive justice. You know, that it is uh, a lot of what this book recounts are, are histories of reproductive injustices of various kinds. You know, they're about, um, uh, they're about a stigmatizing of certain women's reproduction. Uh, the book also recounts the actual coercive means and mechanisms of controlling people's reproduction. Um, usually of, of uh, cisgender women, but sometimes is of men as well. So, so people's reproduction has been targeted, has been stigmatized, has been sort of uh, subject to top-down, sometimes coercive control. So all of these are stories of reproductive injustice, right? But I'm, I think that it's important to tell these stories, um, to know these histories as a, a key way that we can move on from this and to envision kind of more just reproductive futures. And there, I think I would like my book to be in conversation with a lot of other scholars and activists who have made similar claims, not just about India, but about many parts of the world, right? About kind of reckoning with some of these oppressive histories as a way to imagine alternatives in the future. Yeah, like I, like I said, like I was instantly drawn to like this whole kind of like colonial kind of almost mirroring, but. I, you know, so I'm a criminologist, my, I, you know, I've got a criminology background, but what jumped out for me was social harms, like the study of zimiology, yeah, because mm -hmm. there's social harms that have been done all the way along here, aren't they, you know, the social harms that, that are done to a family when, you know, you limit, you limit the amount of children that are available to that family. Yeah, the social harms that are done to the people that are still here, that if, you, if you're discouraging but, but, uh, sort of live birth, but you're not also promoting like sort of like end of life welfare system, mm -hmm. social harm. Social mm -hmm. harm done to people's self-awareness, the lack of recognition of the social harm that's been done to India by the colonial, uh, the colonial power. Is, is another thing. So social harms were just all over this for me. This is a really cried zemiology for me. You know? mm. Um, so where do you see your research going? What's, what's your next project? Um, I've got a couple of different things in my back pocket, but I'm still thinking. Um, I have sort of most immediately, I'm interested in uh, speaking around a little bit more in some of the areas used in, in uh, some of the areas that I'm talking about in this book, but specifically kind of um, drawing out some of the transnational connections a little bit more. You know, there's some certain um, feminists uh, and reproductive activists that I'm interested in kind of following their histories a bit more and thinking about how uh, 
sort of Indian reproductive politics winds up circulating transnationally. So there's, I think there's more I have to say about that. So I'm thinking about it. I think more broadly looking ahead, I'm interested in how um, by the mid 1990s, this, this model of population control, at least rhetorically, uh, falls out of favor and becomes replaced with a discourse around reproductive health. And there's limitations to that discourse. It's not, it doesn't totally overturn the rhetoric of population control entirely. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about the role of sort of transnational feminist organizing in um, sort of challenging population control as a model and sort of instituting new, uh, new rhetorics and, and new practices around reproductive health um, as a way to approach reproductive sexualities. So that's that's an idea out there that I, I want to learn more about. Interesting, actually, that really is quite interesting because you can you can arguably if you if you take the conversation away from from contraception, you can arguably control the behaviour of wider sections of society, those that fall outside the hetero norms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, your chance for your shameless plug. Who are you? What's your book? Who's published it? When's it coming out? So uh, yeah, so to the last question, it's coming out in uh, paperback and hardback simultaneously in June with the University of Washington Press. Uh, it is coming out in a South Asian edition for the South Asian market with Women Unlimited uh, soon, I hope. We're still working on a date for publication with that. Uh, it's also available actually as of just this past week uh, in an open access format. So it's available for everyone in an e open access ebook format that you can get as of now through the University of Washington Press platform, um, but it will soon to be on other platforms as well. And who are you? Who have we been speaking to? And I'm Maithili Srinivas, and uh, I teach at the Ohio State University in the Departments of History and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. And my name is Rachel Stewart, and I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent. Thank you so, so much.